All righty, moving right along. Good morning to you once again. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So that they, they say that X marks the spot on a map, an important place. Got an important place to show you in California here. Means practically nothing to you. My daughter lived in Fresno for a little while, but that's not Fresno, right? So this means nothing until I tell you a little bit about this location, give you a couple clues. At this location, you might have heard people years ago, maybe 1849, yelling the words Eureka. A man by the name of James W. Marshall discovered gold at this site. This is Sutter's Mill. Here is a close-up. It's still there. There we go, right there outside of Sacramento. James Marshall was actually um, the one who was building Sutter's Mill, and he discovered flakes of gold there, and then the two, um, he and Sutter, quickly formed a partnership and tried their best to keep things quiet, but as soon as you apply for mineral rights on a property, apparently that, uh, you know, raises suspicions, and that didn't happen. So the cry of Eureka, though, was probably heard from many prospectors in that area and that during that time. Now Webster's Dictionary describes the word or dis, uh, defines the word Eureka as a cry of joy or satisfaction when you discover or find something. And believe it or not, this word, this phrase, this actual idea comes up in the Bible several times in various forms. Um, one of my favorite moments that this comes up, you can take that map down, Jared. One of the favorite moments is when um, John the Baptist's disciples <clears throat> go and find Jesus. And there's a guy by uh, the name of Philip. Jesus call, calls Philip, and Philip runs to Nathaniel, and he says the word Eureka. He says, Eureka, we have found the one that, the, that Moses and the prophets talked about. You see that in John 1.45? So John um, likes this word. John uses it quite a few times in his writings. And sometimes it comes in a form of a phrase, and sometimes it comes as an exclamation. Um, and it does occur in our uh, reading from the, from the New Testament this morning. I want to talk about another old school word that you might not associate with it, with Eureka, is the word bonanza. Yes, just like the old TV show. I think you can still watch that one on a couple of channels. You can still watch them. So both of those words are a part of speech called an interjection. So um, I like to educate people as I go along. So we're going to watch a quick episode of Schoolhouse Rock. No, we're not going to watch that episode. We're not going to waste our time. We're actually going to watch the best movie of all time. We're going to watch School of Rock instead. So real quick here. Sorry, I couldn't resist. But you can never go home and say you were bored at church on these mornings, right? Back to Eureka or Bonanza, which means uh, that you found something, exclaiming the fact that you found something, excited, uh, found something profitable. Uh, so let's look at some Bible verses and see um, literally how we pray every morning, how, literally how we can grow closer to God because of what we read and what God reveals, how God reveals himself to us and what we see here. So first John, and Lyle read this so well this morning. Lyle, I don't know what it is about you, but every time you read passages, I believe you when you're reading them. I don't know what it is, but... John, First uh, John 3, um, verse 1, the first part of it says that. It says, see um, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And so we are. John, in his opening statement here, um, is overcome with wonder um, by the fact that, that sinners, by divine grace, become children of God. And, and so we are. Um, his opening phrase of see how great of, of love... Um, reflects his amazement in that fact that we are children of God. That opening word, see, I thought deserved an exclamation point. So I put that in there myself, but that's not in our, our but it is, like I said, an interjection, reflects his amazement. Um, and it functions 
this word see functions both as a command. Um, it's in the imperative. It means it's a command and an exclamation, right? Something that is like surprise, like that word, that word eureka, right? Um, and that encourages us or maybe um, more insists that readers um, give close attention to the rest of what John's going to say. Because like I said, a lot of times there's commands in the Bible. We don't recognize them as commands. We think of them as good suggestions or something that we might get around to. No, John says, pay attention with this word see. He's saying, pay attention to this. So these were John's writings. Um, really, John's writings differ from like Paul's writings or different gospel writings. Um, he's got a lot of freedom. He feels like he's got a lot of freedom because a lot of things were already written before he was um, you know, putting his down uh, to pen. So um, you know, where Matthew is writing to Jewish people, John's writing to the world of believers. Right? He had a, a worldwide audience, so that really includes us, new believers, old believers alike. So then John teaches some things um, that speak to everyone. And although, um, you know, especially maybe right here, um, he doesn't say like Paul would say. Paul would say something like, do you not know? But John grabs you and says, see. He says, pay attention. He says, eureka, how great a love the Father has. So he, he, John drops these huge bombs all over his writings, these statements of truth. Um, that John himself, if you read John's writings, John himself said, we wrote these things. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So that you can know that you have eternal life. He says, I'm writing these things so you can know that you have eternal life. You know, that, that Greek word we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, the Greek word ido, which means not only do I know, but it's causing a reaction. It's causing actions from me. So that's what, that's what knowing means, not just head knowledge. Knowledge that leads to action on the part of the hearer, the part of the, uh, the believer. So still in verse 1 here, um, John says, see. He says, um, harao, right? That's the Greek word, harao. He says, see how great a love. Now, this is a little difficult to, under, to uh, translate and understand. Um, this is the Greek word. This is one word called parapas, Greek word parapas. And like I said, it's a phrase that's hard to translate. Not necessarily hard to translate the actual words. We're pretty close with the, with the actual words. But to convey the meaning that Paul, or that or rather that John is going for here, these, these first words, um, see how great a love, um, reflects the apostles' amazement. Um, how great um, is a seldom used term um, in Greek writing, not just in the Bible, but Greek literature um, as a whole. Um, and it, like I said, um, it really has no parallel um, in the English language. But it's a phrase of astonishment, a phrase of astonishment, and usually related to, um, I would say, the word admiration of something. Um, upon viewing something or seeing something, um, uh, the Greek um, patapas, it refers to both um, the quality of something and the quantity of something. So both how good it is and how much of it there is. Both of those things, how much of those. So that's what God is getting at here uh, with the love of God. And that's what John is saying in these opening first words, the, the love of God that has, uh, that's impossible. He's saying this in these words, it's impossible to articulate um, in any human language. It's completely, this concept, this idea is completely foreign to, to normal human understanding and experience. Right? Potipas um, can be translated as, as something that's foreign to us. Not just foreign to us, but rather out of this world. You know, that used to be a phrase. How did it sound? It sounded out of this world. How was it? Out of this world. God's love for us, or God loves us, maybe I should say, with an out-of-this-world kind of love. 
out-of-this-world kind of love. And John yells here, he yells Eureka as if he's just discovered it for the first time, or discovered that fact for the first time for himself, and that he wants everyone else to know. He says Eureka. And you know, the same way um, that Philip wanted Nathaniel to know these things. He said, you know, we found the Messiah. We found the one that the, the, the prophets and Moses had all talked about. And now John is saying, see, I found this amazing love that God the Father, that the creator of the universe has for us. So love, right? We can't be this close to Valentine's Day and not um, have a message about love, right? Guys, you got a couple shopping days left. Actually, I like to think about it more in terms of how many hours I have left to shop, not how many days, because that kind of seems more optimistic to me somehow. But again, though, when we talk about God's love, it's not like our love for each other, right? But for the love of God. I really wanted to, to title this message just simply for the love of God. But then I thought, you know, my, my mom used to yell that at me sometimes when I would do something really stupid, you know. So I thought maybe we don't want to channel quite that in there, right? So, but the love of God is completely, uh, completely and utterly foreign concept to us, or at least it should be. If we really think about what the love of God is, we don't have, we don't grasp the concept um, maybe as we should. Um, the Bible speaks about love in different ways right, differently than we do. And you've heard me talk about this before. It's been a couple of years now since I've talked about this. But the Greek language has typically four words that it translates as love. Four words that it typically translates as love. Um, actually, there's more than that in the Greek language, but there's four that are very, that are very typical. Um, okay, so the, the first one, very briefly, the first one <clears throat> for love is the, is the Greek word eros. Um, and that means a romantic kind of love, and that's where we get our word erotic from. Now, that word doesn't actually appear in the Bible, but the second one does. Stargate does, and it means like a, a love between a mother and a baby, excuse me, <clears throat> or like a brother-sister kind of love. Um, that word is also not in the New Testament, but it's interesting that the negative form of that is in the New Testament in several places. If you put the, the prefix a in front of a, a Greek word, you get the negative form of it. So stargate comes in places like, um, like in uh, 1 Timothy, where we're talking about um, what elders should, the, the traits of elders. One of it says that they should not have a love of money. That is a stargate. So that means that, that's that kind of, should not have a love of money. So that's the stargate that they, or the, the word for love that we use there. The third one is a little bit more common. And may, your Eagles fans are going to love this one because it's the word, Greek word philea. Uh, it means friendship. It's where we get the word uh, Philadelphia. And that, the word Philadelphia actually appears in the New Testament in a couple of places. Uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? That's where we get that from. Okay, so that's, again, that's a friendship kind of love. That word is all over in the Bible. That, that word for love is all over in the Bible. Now, obviously, the fourth kind of love is the one kind we need to talk about, the one that, that blew John's mind, the one that blew John's mind when he said Eureka. Now, remember, this is the one that had been with Jesus for how long, and now he's writing, and he says, you know, I've just figured this out. I've just discovered it. It's blowing my mind, that kind of love um, that's completely foreign to us, that's completely out of this world, that concept um, that... that it's hard to understand the kind of love that God has for us. You know, we call it um, agape love, right? And, and that's that, we call it the unconditional love that we're supposed to emulate. And it's interesting that for the longest time, um, as Greek scholars, we didn't really have a, a grasp of that word. 
Um, early on, uh, Greek scholars thought that Christians invented that word and just said, this is a word that, we just are made up, that we've made up for, uh, to describe the love of God. Paul does that every once in a while. He sneaks in a word that he just makes new um, compound words that kind of just came out of nowhere that he said, we need to create a new word to describe this aspect of God. But agape love, as we got more manuscripts in Greek, we got more um, literature, uh, discovered that it's actually um, a very plentiful word. It's, it's in, around a lot, several places. And then, and then that's the way we really discover the true meaning behind the word. Um, but even with the variety of words um, found in Greek, context is still the king to determine um, what that word, to discern, the, me discern uh, the meaning of that word. So again, you know, we pull that back to English. We say that we love ice cream, we love dogs, and we love our spouses. Yes, not in that order, right? But we, say, but we use the same word. But, so John is, is keeping in context the love of God. He's saying that the love of God is a foreign concept to us. The love of God is an out-of-this-world kind of love that we can't really grasp, we can't get our minds around. So then having said that, that having said that, what does the love of God look like? What does the love of God look like? Well, first of all, I point out here, you know, almost every time we're together and, and when I'm praying up here in front, God uses the Bible to describe himself. God uses the Bible to reveal who he is and how he works in this world and how he works in the minds of his believers. You know, he reveals his attributes to us. To stay in John, just with John this morning for a little while, longer anyway, <clears throat> a little further in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, but anyone who does not love does not know God. It says this, for God is love. Right? Not simply the fact that God loves you in a way that John says that we is completely foreign to our way of thinking and you know, completely out of this world. But he says the fact is God is love. God is that agape love. So it's not just what God does, right? It's not just what God does, it's who God is. Right? Not just what he does, it's who he is. But now what he does because of who he is, say that again, what he does, what God does because of who he is should make us shout Eureka like John did. I want everybody to hear this. All too often when I hear people talk about the love of God, they're usually relating God's love to something here on earth. You know, when I hear people talk about God's love, I hear them relate it to things here on earth. God loves me so much because I have this. Or God loves me so much that this house, this job, this whatever, right? But I challenge you to show me one place in this book right here that relates God's love to earthly events or earthly things. I've been through it a lot, and I haven't ever come up with something like that. So if you have something, email it to me. But every time the Bible talks about God's love, what is it attached to? Salvation. Eternity. His love for us. I read it to you earlier this morning. I want to set it up just a little bit before we get to it. Jesus and Nicodemus talking, right? And Nicodemus, you know, sneaking off to Jesus, wanting to know the truth, wanting to hear what's going on, right? Cover of darkness. He goes up to Jesus. And Jesus basically says to him, he's a little harsh with Nicodemus, but he's really saying, you already know all of this. You already know all of these things because of what you've read before. I'm not telling you anything new, so why is it such a surprise to you? And before we read John 3.16, one thing that I'd like to point out, in fact, we just talked about it at Tuesday morning Bible study. 
One of the things I like to point out is this is Jesus talking. This isn't Paul talking. This isn't the narrative behind one of the um, gospel messages or things like that. These words came from Jesus himself. So when we think about it, we hear these words, and maybe we're a little numb to them. we got to remember that they came out of Jesus' mouth to describe who he is and the purpose that he's here. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved, right? God so loved. What's this attached to? Eternal life. Salvation. Right? doesn't say God so loved the world so much that you're all going to drive a great car and have a great house and a big property and all these good... No, it says eternal life. It doesn't say that God so loved the world so you can have a great day tomorrow. It says that you can have eternal life. And then Jesus goes on. You know, 17 is almost as powerful and 15 almost is more, is poor, more, as much at least as powerful. I was going to say more, but it's verse 16. For God did not send 17... God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. God's love is always talking about eternal life and salvation. And here it's coming straight out of Jesus' mouth. That word only means a unique kind, one of a kind. A unique Savior for the unique love of God for the world. Jesus, speaking of this crazy, reckless, indescribable, untranslatable, absolutely foreign, out-of-this-world kind of love that God has for his people. Why? Because God is love. So much so that he sent that unique one and only son, the unique Savior, into the world. And we can't gloss over, I talk about this a lot, we can't gloss over when God did all of this for us. Romans 5.8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Passages say, while we were enemies with God, still enemies with God, right? Still disagreeing with God, still not on the same page, still speaking a different language than God was speaking. God sent his son into the world while we were still sinners, for a bunch of people that didn't deserve him. So God himself comes down to this earth. Again, not in a reaction or as a reward for how great we are and how deserving we are, but rather because of who he is. God is love. He who is indescribable. God is beyond description. Came down to demonstrate some indescribable foreign idea kind of love to us. And again, not to judge the world, but to save it. To take away the sin of the world. And we need to understand that that was God's plan from the very beginning. It's Ephesians, isn't it? Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right? We talk about those words a lot. I try to pray those words for us as often as I can sneak them in. That God chose us before he laid the foundation of the world. right? That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. right? And that's agape. That's NASB 95. The NLT says it a little bit differently, a little more conversational. Even before he made the world, it says, 
God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. How are we all without fault? Because we're forgiven. Because we have that salvation. Not because of what we've done. Right? Not so that we are now blameless, that we don't do anything. No, because he forgives us. We can easily mix up the love of the world for the love of God. We can mix up the love of the world for the love of God. We look at love um, that comes from the world. We look at love from the world as a reward, right? Because of what we've done and who we are. But that's not how it is with, with God's love or with the love of God. He loves us because of who he is. Right? And he loved us before he laid the foundations of the world. Right? Put up the NLT one one more time, Jared, please. Even before he made the world, God loved us. Right? Not because of what you've done. He loved you like this before he created you. So don't get the, uh, God, the love of God confused with the love of the world. Like I said, the love of the world we think is, you know, is a reward, but that's not what the love of God is. It's because of who he is. So simply put, the question might be, why does God love us? I'm not sure we could fully answer that question. But I can guarantee you, well, he's like, it's not because we're lovable. <laughs> or because we're deserving of it. You get what I'm saying here? Romans 3, to make that point that we're not lovable, deserving, says that no one, we're, no one is truly chasing after God. Not fully, anyway. Goes on to say that there's none righteous, none who understand, no one who seeks God, no one who is turning aside. Those words from Moses. And yet God is love. Because God is love, he shows that love by saving us to him. How does he do that? By this forgiving our rebellion against him, by sending his son, his spirit, to live in each and every one of us. By sending his one and only son to the cross to take away the sins of the world. We're coming up on Lent right now. That's really where our minds should be going. God says he draws us to himself. God says his love is personal because he knows each and every one of us individually and personally loves us. And John describes it as an untranslatable foreign kind of love. Out of this world kind of love that has no beginning and it knows no end. So the question that we should answer, the way we should answer the question, so why does God love us? It's because of who he is. And who is he? God is love. Amen? All right. Could you please stand with me?